I want to begin today by telling you two parables in the spirit Jesus might have told them. First one is a true story. I was uh, going to lunch one day and I happened to run into my friend Mike Silva. And he, uh, he ran a company in Silicon Valley. He was an engineer, but nobody quite understood or knew what his company did. He was always involved in these strange contracts and research deals and development uh, operations. And so I, I just happened to run into him at an Arby's and I was so pleased because I was gonna get like 40 minutes of mic time to figure out exactly what he's going on. And so I asked him, what are you working on right now? And he said, well, I'm doing an environmental impact study on offshore wind farms. And I said, that's fascinating, tell me more. How do you do an environmental impact study? And he said, well, there's three things that most people care about when you're doing this kind of study. The first is, how will what you wanna do affect animals that are endangered? Because things that are living kind of right on the edge of survivability, you need to pay attention to that. The second thing that they study is commercial interests, like in this case, the fishing industry. How will what you're proposing, how would that change the ability for some people to make money? He said the third one is a little more difficult to measure. It's the, it's the cool, cute factor. And in this case, the, the dolphins are cute. And so you want to know how is it going to affect the dolphins because people are going to care about that. And, and in this case, sharks, they're cool. Uh, people are going to want to figure out how that's going to affect sharks. And so that's what I'm paying attention to. And I said, well, how's, it, how's the study going? And he said, well, I just got back from a conference about a week ago, and I, I met up with a colleague who's doing the same research study, impact study, that I'm doing. And I asked him, so what are, you, what are you looking at? What are the factors? And he said, well, we're looking at sponges. And Mike took a pause, because sponges aren't endangered, and they're not commercially viable. They're certainly not cute, and they're not cool. Why sponges? And his colleague replied, well, sponges clean the water. If you lose the sponges, you're going to kill the coral that's nearby. And if you kill the coral, you've killed the ecosystem of the water. So I said, well, Mike, what are you going to do? And he said, I think we need to go back and study sponges. Those that have ears to hear, let them hear. N.T. Wright tells a story about uh, a woman who was uh, a world-class uh, musician in both piano and violin. And as she was nearing the end of her life, she decided to give the violin that she'd used for most of her career to one of her grandchildren and the piano that she had used to another of her grandchildren. And she passed, and the granddaughter that received the violin, she used it as her own, and she loved to play it. And every day, she would use grandmother's violin to practice and perform. The grandson that had the piano, he already had another piano that was pretty good. And so he wanted to take grandma's piano, the special piano, and he, he put it in his parlor as a memory. In fact, he decorated the entire room around this piano, and he didn't really touch it because he didn't really need it, and it was grandma's piano. Well, 
Years and decades passed, and the piano went unplayed. And it got a little out of tune. And it was neglected to the point that the grandson didn't notice that there was an infestation of termites and worms. And after a few years later, the only thing the piano was useful for was firewood. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Let's pray. Father God, we do not move until we hear a word from you. We do not speak until you give us words to say. And we are so grateful to be gathered here together to listen to your voice, to experience the Spirit move in our lives, to remind us who we are and what we're for. And Father, as we, as we think about today and as we think about your word, I pray that you prepare to send us out back into our city. Fill us with your light and your joy and your peace, your kindness and your love. Keep us in step to your music and teach us your song. May we echo your glory everywhere we go. And now as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. And it's together that the church says, amen. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, about halfway down the chapter. If you want to turn your Bible there. I want to remark for just a second about the silence that you just experienced in worship. Because there could have been two reactions that you had. The first is the reaction of the person that wants to get it right. Like, I want to do silence and contemplation right. And so I'm really just going to focus in on God. And then I get distracted and I, I'm looking over at somebody next to me or I'm, I'm thinking about the words on the slides or I hear somebody cough or, or, or a toddler make noise and I'm really mad because I wasn't focusing on God. So I'm going to just white knuckle my way through this experience. If that was the way it was for you, that's fine. I think that's pretty normal. But as you engage in the discipline of silence, what I want to encourage you to do is acknowledge the fact that your mind went astray. You started thinking about lunch, and that's okay. Just acknowledge in your mind to yourself and then move on. Recenter yourself and refocus yourself back on what you came to do. The other experience you might have had is you found yourself crying, and you don't know why. I think most of us don't have the time or space to process our feelings, our emotions, or the experiences that we've had. And so when it gets quiet, we, all that starts to kind of bubble up. And so if you're experienced today, you find tears welling in your eyes and running down your cheeks, and you were reminded of pain that you haven't thought or heard about in years, that's fine. Treat that as a call from God to begin to unpack some of those things that you've been carrying and know what is yours to carry because that may not be part of it. Maybe that's something you need to think about giving to God. We've been in the process of this sermon series on kindness and 
We're almost done. We only have one more week. But what I want us to think about this week is how kindness is the thing that keeps us aware of the dry rot in our lives. Kindness is the canary in my soul. And I don't know if this actually happened or if it's just a myth, but miners have this story that they tell of, they used to keep canaries in cages down in the mines. And the reason that they did this is because of carbon monoxide. Carbon monoxide is odorless and tasteless. You can't sense it in any way, but it would, it would settle down in, in the mines. And too breathing that too much can make you dizzy, and then you pass out, and then you die. So they would take these canaries, and they would put them down in the coal mines with them because if the canary stopped singing, it was time to pay attention. Canaries are more susceptible to carbon monoxide than we are. And if the canary was dead on the bottom of the cage. It was a warning. It was time to get out. And so I think in some ways, kindness is my canary. In the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing to a church that he really loves. He deeply cares about that church and about the work that it's doing. And he wants to encourage them and teach them And so for the first three chapters of the book, he spends time talking about unity and what grace means and how that gets lived out together, both in this reality that we can see the messy reality of our lives together, but also this kind of cosmic sense of what we can't see, that this church that exists in this time of place is a reflection of kind of the the cosmic church that is universal. But as he turns the corner in chapter 4, he wants to get very practical in giving some advice about how they should live together. And he wants to talk about what it means to be transformed into the image of God. He begins this by saying, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. Now, here he's talking about the Gentiles, the pagans, the others. He's kind of using that as a contrast. They have lost all sensitivity and have abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greedy to every kind of impurity. That is not the way that you learned Christ. For surely you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to clothe yourselves with the new self, creating according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then jump down to the end of the chapter. This is how we carry this out. Therefore, put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. It's fascinating what Paul says here. He says on the outside of the, the, the Christian community that people's hearts are being calcified and they're being darkened in their understanding. And, and this is happening because they're losing their sensitivity and they're indulging, therefore, in deeper and deeper sensuality. I am becoming absolutely convinced I am losing my sense of smell. As I grow older, I found myself wanting to eat spicier and spicier things 
just so I can taste it. And this is why I put sriracha on everything for breakfast. Eggs, pancakes, waffles, sriracha. Because I want to taste it. It's really good. At least as far as I can tell. And this is what Paul is talking about. Because their hearts are hardening, they're losing sensory perception. And they're indulging themselves in deeper and deeper sensual experiences in order to get their fix, in order to have their full fill. And he says, don't be that way. Take off that old self. Put on a new self instead. That old self only leads to one place, but when you put on a new self, it takes you to God. And I am absolutely convinced that we need to keep our sensitivity. And I think our sensitivity is expressed in in two ways, in two things. One is in the awareness of a moral compass that is directing us toward the good. When you feel that sense in your spirit, when you kind of hear that voice in your head, when you're in a bad situation, when you're about to make a bad decision, and, and it says, no, get out, run, that's that kind of moral compass directing you out of the bad. Or it happens in the other way, when you see some good that you could do, someone that's hurting or someone that needs help, and that is that urging inside of you to do something, that's the spirit of God. That's that moral compass that's keeping you aligned to keep in step with the spirit. The second way that this gets expressed is just in our our empathy toward the suffering of others. When you see someone that is hurting, when you see someone that's in pain, when you see someone that's lonely or isolated and, and there's that urging inside of you to identify with them and then do something, that stands in stark contrast with seeing someone in those situations and just walking away. And we keep our sensitivity by returning back to God again and again and again. And we keep doubling down and reinvesting in God. Even Jesus had to do this. Jesus needed silence and solitude to do his work. And when you read through the Gospels with this lens, with this awareness, it is striking how often Jesus keeps going back to lonely places to pray. Over and over again, Jesus left to be alone. Jesus left to pray. It was the only way he could do his work. Think about that for just a minute. Jesus, who is God, took time away from everything around him to be with God so that he could carry out the work of God. And it was the only way that he could be successful. Jesus needed silence and solitude in order to do his work. And this happens all over the place. Before important moments, this happens. Before Jesus chooses the 12, the ones that will represent him as as disciples, Jesus goes off to pray. It happens in important moments when Jesus is about to be tested by the evil one. He goes off to pray. He fasts for 40 days. He's alone with the Father. And when he comes back, he's going to be tempted. And one of the temptations is, hey, turn these stones into bread. Show us your power. And you realize the depth of that temptation when you think he hasn't eaten anything for 40 days. 
This is more than just how are you going to do your ministry. This is where are you going to get your identity and your sustenance. And you might think, after 40 days of not eating, that Jesus must be at his weakness. He must be so malnourished and empty that he is ready to take the deal of the devil. But that's not the case. He has been with the Father. He has been relying on the Father for his daily needs. He has been eating on the Father, what the Father has to offer him. He is not at his weakness in that moment. Jesus is at his strongest. And he resists temptation. It even happens when Jesus is tempted surrounding success. Immediately after Jesus feeds the multitude, he sends, uh, he takes off and goes away. This is the, probably the most popular moment in Jesus's ministry. It's where he's going to be seen the most because he can feed everyone. And who wouldn't want a free meal? But more than that, if we had an army that didn't need to be fed, that could go out and live in the, the wilderness away from water and away from food because we had the power of this, of this general that could provide us food wherever we go, we could overthrow the Romans. And it's in that temptation for Jesus to give up on what his mission is and his ministry is that he goes off to resist what the world is calling him to. It's the only way he could carry out his mission. And we think we can do otherwise. So what does solitude do? I am uh, deeply indebted to Randy Harris. He helped us think about and prepare the service today and this sermon. There's a huge difference between solitude and loneliness. You can be alone and lonely, and it will be a soul-emptying experience. Or you can be alone in solitude and it can be a soul-filling experience. In fact, as Clark mentioned earlier at the beginning of the service, sometimes you don't even have to be alone to be in solitude. Before we had kids and I had free time, I would uh, spend my off days alone. Natalie would go off to work in the morning, and I would have eight or nine hours all to myself to, to do chores, to take care of business, even just to like mess around. And some of those days when Natalie came back, I was so excited and ready to re-engage with her. But there were other days when she would come back after I'd been alone all day long. And what I really wanted was just like another hour and a half to myself. That's because I was lonely. I was spending that time in loneliness and it was draining me. So when you go off to be alone, it isn't just being away from other people. Solitude is a spiritual posture. Silence is the second most effective way to grow your relationship to God. Now, the most effective way is suffering. Suffering is the most powerful way for you to draw closer to God. And if you think about your own life, when there was a time when it was hard, when you were dealing with difficult things, when there was tragedy in your life, if you were in that moment able to turn towards God in your suffering, as you reflect on that moment, often people say, you know, that was the closest I was with God when I was in that hard time. The trouble is, it's really difficult to live in suffering. I don't think we're meant to live our entire lives in suffering, but silence mimics that in such a way that it can draw us closer and turn us toward God. We have become such chattering things, haven't we? 
It's so easy to fill your life with noise. You don't even understand what silence really is. And that may be part of the reason why this morning was uncomfortable for you. And Jesus, or excuse me, Richard Foster points out an interesting idea. He's talking about the moment of transfiguration. Peter, James, John, and Jesus go off on a mountain. Now, it's significant that they're going off on a mountain. That means something because they're about to encounter Moses and Elijah. Think about when Moses went up the mountain to get the law. Think about when Elijah went up the mountain to have that encounter, theophany, that experience with God. Peter, James, and John go up the mountain. Jesus is transfigured, and Moses, which represents the law, and Elijah, which represents the prophets, are there in this moment of unexplainable, imaginable glory. And Jesus and Moses and Elijah are talking to one another. And then Peter starts talking about this. He starts talking about booths. He says, let's set up some tents. Which, it's interesting what Foster points out. That the text originally said, Peter answered. Who did Peter answer? Nobody is talking to Peter. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are talking, but not to Peter. But his mouth is chattering. And I think we find ourselves in the shoes of Peter now again. In that moment in our lives, when we answer someone who is not talking because we are uncomfortable living in silence. And so part of this discipline, this act of spiritual formation is learning to be quiet before God because God might just say something. Now, it may not be practical for you to go off and join a monastery because you've already made commitments that you need to honor. So I, I want to encourage you this week to find little solitudes. Find moments of silence. Maybe that means you turn off your radio in your car when you're driving by yourself. Uh, maybe that means on your lunch break, you, just, you find an hour to be alone in a park with God. Maybe you spend a day or half a day not using words. And if you're texting your spouse who's in the same room, that doesn't count. That's cheating. <laughs> or if you're serious about this, if this is an enriching experience, if your heart was moved today, maybe you find a weekend once a year where you can go to a retreat center and just unplug everything and see what happens. The fruit of silence and solitude is kindness and compassion for others. Thomas Burden says, in silence and solitude, I learned to love my brothers and sisters for what they are, not what they say. Silence reorients our sensitivities and turns us back to God. It takes our calcified hearts, which cause us to need greater and greater sensual experiences, sometimes even in worship, and softens it back so that we can not only hear God's voice, but also hear the hurting in our brothers and sisters. I found in my own life when I begin to lose, I stop having the impulse to be kind, that it's taking me in my first step away from having a small, soft heart toward God. And I know if I can justify in my mind or in my heart or even in my words, some reason why I don't have to be kind to someone that I know or someone that I don't know, that's a canary for me. 
Because what happens after that, the next step in that process is, I hear a song at church on Sunday, and six months ago or a year ago, that song would have made me cry, and I just kind of wonder what's happening on my Facebook feed instead. And it, it might be different for you, but it turns my heart hard. Kindness is my canary. It, it tells me when it's time to get out of the coal mine that I'm living in. In Galatians chapter 5, uh, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and it's, it's the evidence of the Spirit. It's the overflow of the Spirit. It's the thing that happens when you keep in step with God. It's the song you sing when you hear that counter melody in the Spirit as it plays in your heart. It's the things that happen when your breath and His breath are the same. I had a friend named Aaron Walls, and, and he was a, a real-life bodybuilder like competition bodybuilders, spray his body orange and get in these poses. He was the gym teacher at the, at the school that our church was working with. He was amazing because he would always have this incredible workout and he only ate chicken and broccoli three, days, or three meals a day every day of the week. Incredible discipline. It's what it takes to be a bodybuilder. And I, I went to him because I, I was doing this diet and it was kind of working for me. You could like see my jawline for the first time in five years. And I was pretty proud of it because when you're on a diet and it's working, the last thing, everything you want to say is like, hey, I'm on a diet and it's working. Um, and he said, don't talk to me about diet. I don't care about your diet. He said, tell me about your lifestyle. Tell me what you're doing to change the way that your habits are formed, not what your habits are. Anybody can take a diet for 30 days. It takes a lot to have the discipline to make your life different. And that's the question that I want to leave us with, the question for us to ponder today. Is silence and solitude a diet, a fad? Or is it something we can lend our lives into? Aaron was right. Because whether or not you choose to be kind or not in a moment, that decision, it charts your life. It sets your compass. N.T. Wright, after he told the story about the violin and the piano, he's reflecting on Ephesians chapter 4, and he says something that startled me. And I don't know if he's right, but it, it made me uh, pay attention. He said, when hearts get hard and behavior changes and minds change, that person loses the thing within them that looks like God. He goes on to say that that person loses the image of God by the choices they make. They become something other, something that's unrecognizable. Losing kindness is the thing that leads me to become the unimage of God. And so let us never stop returning to the well of silence and solitude. Let us never stop singing the counter melody that God is laying in our hearts. Let's sing together.